This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a General Surgeon and Chief Medical Officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital, DeSoto. And hi, everyone. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Baptist System. Well, today we are so incredibly honored to have Teresa Brown, the New York Times bestseller of the book Shift, also wrote a book called Critical Care. But today we're going to talk about her next bestseller, Healing, When a Nurse (laughs) Becomes a Patient. Teresa, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Definitely. I am what's known as a second career nurse uh, with an unusual background. I have a PhD in English. My dad was a philosophy professor, and I thought I wanted to follow in his footsteps, then became a professor and felt like, huh, maybe I want to follow someone else's footsteps or make my own. Mm. Had kids, discovered this caregiving, wanting to mix it up with the mess of life part of my personality. And a friend who's a nurse said, when I said, how can you turn that into a job? Said, you could become a nurse. Uh, and and so I did and ended up doing the accelerated program at University of Pittsburgh. I worked in oncology and home hospice. And then right when my twin daughters who had inspired me to become a nurse went to college and I was thinking, well, now do I want to write more? Do I want to work more clinically? I was diagnosed with breast cancer, which was not on my list and became a cancer patient, and from that experience wrote the book you just so nicely introduced. Well, Teresa, once again, thank you very much for being here. You're, one of the first books that you wrote was called The Shift, which was actually about being an oncology nurse, taking care of patients, and I think that was in 2015 or so mm-hmm. when you wrote that book. When, when were you diagnosed with, with your breast cancer? Fall of 2017. Fall of 2000. So you're you're coming on five years out, which congratulations. That that's that's awesome. But tell us a little bit about. I mean, you had been, you know, an oncology nurse taking care of these these cancer patients, and then all of a sudden, here you are. You know, you are actually the patient, and 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 not only are you. A cancer patient, but you're you're a a provider who has taken care of cancer patients. What what did that feel like? T- tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I in the moment when I was diagnosed, well, from based on an ultrasound, <clears throat> people listening know, of course, you need the biopsy for 100 percent. But the radiologist was pretty sure, and she was sure. right. But from that moment, I was absolutely terrified. And realizing how terrified I was, I also became aware that I had never understood everything my patients were going through. And of course, at that time, I didn't know what my diagnosis was, right? It turned out to be stage one, a very small, slow-growing breast cancer, the most common kind, very treatable. If you're going to have breast cancer, this is the one you want to have, right? Sure. But even with that, I like to emphasize that diagnosis because even with that, I was still mortally afraid. And I was taking care of patients with acute leukemia. You know, the oncologist listening, no, these are people who they're kind of living their life and they get a phone call based on routine blood work, or maybe they've been really tired lately. And the phone call tells them, you need to go to the hospital right now. And you're going to be there for six weeks to two months. And if you don't do this, you're going to die. So someone had 
probably told them that. And they must have been even more afraid than I was. And they knew they were looking at this very intense treatment. They show up, nurses start educating them right away. The doctors are talking with them right away, long conversations about what's gonna come up with their treatment. And as a nurse, I never really got that. And I think you know this as a physician, every physician listening knows this, you cannot go to work 100% empathizing with patients. You can't show up every day thinking, wow, I understand how these people feel. They're all afraid they're gonna die because you'll burn out in six months, right? But there's gotta be more of an understanding of emotionally where patients are and we need to get better at that. Uh, that's a that's a really great point. Um, it, is, it certainly is very hard to, as a physician, to put yourself in, in the patient's shoes. Like you said, we we sometimes try to distance from our um, from our patients just so that we can carry on with our day to day work. Um, but one of the questions I wanted to ask was, what were some of the organizational and operational um, things that you noticed from the patient perspective that you didn't notice as an oncology nurse that were frustrating uh, as a patient? What, what a great question. And I hardly ever get <laughs> to talk about this kind of nitty gritty quality improvement stuff. So thank you. It makes me very happy. <laughs> so uh, I had the ultrasound, have been crying in the hallway, crying, talking to the doctor. They say, you won't leave here without a, an appointment for a biopsy. Go sit down to get the biopsy. No one comes, no one comes. You know, this is the worst day of my life, right? Finally, a receptionist came by and said, oh, she leaves at three, you just missed her. And I wanted to hurt that woman. And I, I am not a violent person. Um, I didn't, of course, but why was there no connection with the scheduler that someone's gonna be coming who needs an appointment? Why is there only one person who can be the scheduler. Like, I don't understand that at all. Um, so those two things. And then much later I realized, what if I weren't me? What if I just hadn't called for an appointment? You know, what if I'd waited a whole year and come back a year later? Oh, wow, your tumor's a lot bigger. Um, did you, What happened? You know, was I lost to follow up? And so was there anyone who was gonna make sure I called to get a biopsy or not. Um, and then the per when I called to make an appointment the next morning, initially she offered me something two weeks away. And I said- Which we, we as uh, providers would always think, you know, that sounds perfectly reasonable, two weeks, right. we're and soon. Sure. Right, exactly. And yeah. I just said, no. And then she said, well, we're short of radiologists. And that's what I did all day yesterday, rearranging everyone's schedules. And I said, that has nothing to do with me. So all these areas of breakdown, I get you. As a nurse, I probably would have listened to a patient telling the story and said, oh, that sounds really hard. And yeah, yeah, I really wish we could be more responsive. But in the back of my mind, I'd be thinking, well, this is the system. This is the way it works. I wish it were more responsive, but it's not. But as a patient, each one of those moments said to me, you cannot trust us. You cannot trust that we're looking out for you, that we care about you. 
And the metaphor I, I use in the book is that patients are just on an assembly line. And that's really how I felt. And you kind of get, you get dumped on the assembly line and then you kind of move down the line, right? And things happen to you while you're there. And also nobody likes the person who puts a break on the assembly line or says, wait a minute, I want to be on that other assembly line because there's all these other assembly lines that intersect with it and then they get messed up. Um, so that was amazing to me to go through that as a patient and have every single thing be so important. But I knew as a nurse, I wouldn't have seen it that way. And in fact, in Healing a Tell Story about a patient who was done with his induction chemo, he was coming back for follow-up chemo. And the plan was we were gonna start him at the inpatient clinic across the street. He would start early and be able to leave the hospital earlier. I think it was you know, two, two nights in the hospital for follow-up, right? So he came over from the outpatient clinic, hadn't been started on IV fluids, which they were supposed to do. And if the IV fluids haven't started or you aren't getting IV fluids, you can't get your chemo because it's so toxic, right? It's great, call down, get a pump. And um, the supply said, we're out of IV pumps. And everyone listening knows, this is like a restaurant saying we're out of forks, right? Mm -hmm. Like that just doesn't happen. Or our stove is just not working, sorry. Um, so I thought, okay, that's strange. I'll just call back in half an hour and no, we're out of IV pumps out of, for hours out of IV pumps. And I was really busy with my other patients and this patient would come to the door and look at me and give me these searing dirty looks, which were really hard to take. Um, and I reflected on this once I became a patient because as the nurse, I felt like this is annoying. I get it. And you're angry at me but it is not my fault what is happening here. It is some very weird thing where aliens have come and taken all the IV pumps from our hospital or <laughs> something. I don't know what's going on. And sometimes I would have it in me to run around the hospital trying to find an IV pump that day. I just didn't have it in me. So I think I get it. He's annoyed. He's going to leave later, but ultimately he's going to get his chemotherapy. The really important thing is going to happen. After I was a patient, I suddenly understood that for him, he had trusted us. We had told him, we have a new plan for you. It's going to get you out of here earlier. And we did not follow through with that plan. Like that makes us jerks and uncaring. And I really wondered how he felt about his medical team after that day. I'm sure he did not feel good. So that it, that's a long answer, but I think it's so important to both acknowledge how we feel as practitioners in this over busy world, but how things that to us seem yeah difficult, but not that big a deal in context can actually feel huge to patients. You know, it's in, also I was going to ask you a question. Did you get some results when you said when you told them, no, this this really isn't acceptable? How, how did how did they respond to that? She did say, OK, that's when she said that, well, I had to rearrange everyone else's schedules. But then it just took a couple of minutes and she found me an appointment the next week. So then then I wasn't sure why. She, she never asked me. I mean, she didn't seem to have any information about me like that. I was not 
a woman being scheduled for a biopsy and they thought it was a fibroid adenoma. I mean, I've had biopsies before um, for those. You know, she she didn't seem to know mm-hmm. and she asked me. The radiologist was pretty sure it was cancer. I'm not sure if that's what you were getting at, but ask me more if you have more. No, thought. no, no. I was just getting at you know you you mentioned uh, in your book about the the squeaky wheel type patient and the compliant patient, and we we've all had the we've all had the squeaky wheel. Sometimes we label them as as difficult patients, and and you say that sometimes those patients may not get quite as good a care because you might just want to avoid. You know, I don't even want to deal with that person. But but on the other hand, you have the 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 totally compliant patient who just says yes to everything. And you also mentioned that that those patients may not. You know, where do you find that balance between questioning what's going on, being the squeaky wheel and being overly compliant? Does that make sense? That is a really great question. And it's hard to find that balance. There's a moment in the book where I realize somewhat embarrassedly, oh, I I am the difficult patient. I have become that person no one likes, you know, who says, why does this have to take so long? Why can't this happen sooner? I don't understand what you're telling me. So two things. In that moment, I realized these are very appropriate adult questions. And so when I've been talking about the book, I've been advising patients ask questions if you don't understand something, but always be appropriate. There's no need to be uncivil, to yell at people, to be abusive. Um, That just makes everyone uh, tense up and not want to talk to you, right? We're all human. But on the other hand, don't try and argue about every little thing. Um, I, I think sometimes people can get in that mode, and I had to stop myself from doing that. I think it's very hard to find that balance. And what I would love is if management would realize, hey, we need to actually give more time to treat patients as human beings and, you know, could CMS, could you code for spent 10 minutes talking to a patient about their fear of dying? Um, mm-hmm. Wouldn't that wouldn't that be lovely <laughs> if uh, you could actually bill for that? Um, I'm not giving a good answer to that question because I think it's a hard question to answer. But basically, if something feels important, bring it up, bring it up appropriately, and don't bring up every single thing. You know, save it for when it really matters. Um, but but I think the you know sometimes the difficult patient has been created by the healthcare system. People feeling like they're not listened to, or that guy who had to wait and wait and wait for his chemo to start. You know maybe next time he's going to be the difficult patient because mm-hmm. what's going to happen to all that anger he had? So I really want sort of a from my mouth to God's ears moment if CEOs and administrators could listen to what I'm saying, read the book, see that actually spending time with people and giving them compassion can actually save money because it makes care less demanding in the long run. That's really important that treating people like widgets isn't getting a good product for them necessarily. And it's, I don't think it's good for clinicians either. 
I mean, you guys can tell me, but I think most doctors, they want to show up, they want to feel a connection with people, they want to feel like they're doing good, but that there's also a human interaction there, right? Um, but if all of us as clinicians, all we want is the squeaky wheel because we're too busy, then we're also cheating ourselves of probably what got us into this work. Yeah, that's very well said. Um, so earlier you mentioned something along the lines of, of poor communication between some of the, the team related to you know who you were as a patient. Um, and all of us have experienced, I think, poor communication between healthcare providers, especially different specialists um, that are all taking care of the same patient. Uh, but I wanted to get your perspective of what that looks like from the patient side of things about, you know, your primary oncologist and the radiation oncologist and the, ra and the radiologist and all these different players and how they, what did it seem like from the patient side of things about Don't how they- Don't forget the surgeon, Jay. <laughs> And the I'm surgeon, kidding. the most important no, of, no, of no, all no, the I'm specialists. Uh, what, what, how does it look from the patient side of things? Um, are, are we working together as a team? Are we talking to each other? Or what does that look like? Yeah, another really good question that lets me spell out my difficulties with some things that happened. The best example I can use to illustrate this is when after surgery, I went to see the physician assistant for my surgeon and she just kind of casually said, well, yeah, you may need chemotherapy. And I had already been told, and it, see, I don't remember who told me this, that I would not need chemotherapy. And the PA seemed incredibly surprised at how upset I got, which is bizarre. And she had no idea how the decision got made, when it would be made. They offered no help to me for getting that decision made. Um, I, I, I just felt so lost and on my own and, and whoever it was that I can't remember, which again is another thing to keep in mind. I was going to all the appointments and my husband and neither one of us remembered who told us that. You know, so that you hear people get a cancer diagnosis, they can't hear what's being said to them. It's true. Or they don't remember things. That ha I have an amazing memory, not after my diagnosis. Forgot all kinds of things. So no sense of who decides if I need chemo, when does it get decided? And I had to wait on radiation if I needed chemo, but not if I didn't need chemo. And I'd made an appointment with a medical oncologist for when I thought radiation would be over and I needed a medical oncologist now to decide whether or not I needed chemo. So in the book, I compare that to, there's all these catch 22s and mm -hmm. I talk about teaching that great book to my students at Tufts University when I was an English professor. It just was a bloody nightmare and I didn't feel like anybody was helping me. And finally, I, I reached out to an oncologist I know, which I, I did not want to do stuff like that. But it was, my husband was getting really upset. And I really, not really upset, but for him, he's a very calm guy. <laughs> and I realized he wanted me just to make the appointment and find out. And for me, it ended up being a very, very quick decision because there are these <clears throat> algorithms actually developed here in Pittsburgh it was a five minute 
conversation, that piece of my meeting with the medical oncologist. So I, I don't understand why there isn't more of a procedure in place for making that decision. Why are patients just expected to wait? Um, I had been able to take a leave from work, but what if I hadn't? Or what if I had, but I had the kind of work where you can't just go back to work for six weeks while you wait to see the medical oncologist, then you start chemo, then months later you're doing radiation. You know, our workplaces in America are not that friendly to people needing sick leave. Um, I think that maybe got a little bit better during COVID, but not everywhere, certainly. So it just, it seemed like everything you can hear, it's like the thing still makes me kind of tongue tied. Mm -hmm. The whole experience seems so disconnected from reality and was just all about their scheduling. I do think once I got a medical oncologist, then she and the surgeon communicated well, but it, it really just felt terrible. And to me, having someone say, well, you might need chemotherapy, you know, it's like, well, we might need to amputate your foot. We're just not sure. Yeah, we don't really know who decides or when. Sure. Well, it sounds it sounds like you didn't have a, a multidisciplinary one team, and and you know we're finding out, and especially in oncology, if it, when you have one team, you have everybody at the table, and and you know your biopsy is discussed with with all the all the key players, and you know including you, it, primarily wow. you know primarily you as well, and then. You know, once the surgery's done and the final pathology comes back, th those people will sit down and meet again and come up with a treatment plan. And and um, yeah, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times it's that the care is so fragmented, and and sometimes you don't want to say this, but the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing a lot of those times. That that is how it felt. I have heard about places it's where it, like it sounds like yours is where there is a team, there's good communication, patients maybe even get something written down. That's that's another process thing. I, I didn't get anything written down, which for the life of me, I don't understand why that is. I did get a book from the surgeon's office, but then it, it actually had mistakes in it and talked a lot about lymphedema, which then it turns out I was never at risk for because they didn't take any lymph nodes. So yeah, that kind of destroys your trust right there. Absolutely. Sure. And I wanted to say to them, you know, could, could you just pay me a couple hundred dollars and I'll just redo that for you? Because I could, I could do that book, but I, I didn't want to get into that. But you know, the point is, it's not that hard, right? It's not that hard to write a book that's actually, you know, a kind of notebook handout that's useful to people. But someone does have to care enough to do that. Did you ever have to tell yourself, OK, I'm just going to separate myself from being a healthcare provider in general. I'm just going to be a patient. But the reason I ask that is sometimes, you know, I, I have to get fairly routine colonoscopies. And, and a lot of times I just go, OK, I don't even want them to know that I am a healthcare provider at all. I just want to go through the system and, 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 you know, let them do their thing without, without knowing, knowing who I am or, or giving me any, I don't want to say bias, but, but you know what I mean? Yeah, actually I, that is, that is what I wanted. And 
I felt like I really kind of lost touch with my nurse self. I, one of the things I couldn't remember was everything I'd ever learned about breast cancer, which was not a lot, but I mean, you know, relatively speaking, but I forgot about staging, tumor markers. I could not remember any of it. And even now, if I'm thinking about my own case, it's hard for me to remember it. So yes, I I wanted to just be a patient very much. And it's interesting, a friend of mine said, you should just tell them I'm Teresa Brown and I write for the New York Times. <laughs> or I'm Teresa Brown and I'm a best-selling author and a nurse. But I, I really... I really didn't want that. I I just wanted to exactly. be careful and be cared for. And uh, unfortunately, I, I don't know if that was the best strategy for me. Um, it didn't work out so well. I, I do want to ask about that because, you know, you're pretty unique in that you have a you know, PhD in English and you're a, a nurse and you ride for the New York Times. How does... How has writing affected, you know, how you felt as a patient, how you felt as a nurse, uh, being able to express yourself and deal with this difficult time in your life? Um, You know, a lot of healthcare providers going or experiencing burnout, nurses are experiencing burnout and so are physicians. Um, How does writing help you or does it help you deal with any of this that you're going through? It, It does. I found writing the book really hard. Sometimes I would finish a day of writing and feel like I'd been hit by a bus. But as the manuscript was turning into a book, which is a long process and there's lots of editing and oh, here's the cover, what do you think? And here's the typeface and I mean, so much that goes into it. But I found all of that very healing. And then now having the book out in the world, I'm hoping that patients can see themselves in it and feel like, oh, she saw what I was going through. I went through a lot of the same thing. I hope that clinicians can read it and find an understanding of patients that's greater than maybe what they had, but but from someone who knows exactly how hard their job is, right? This is not some pie in the sky. Well, why can't you just sit with me for half an hour, doctor? <laughs> no, um, I know what the pressures are. And my wish is, as I've said a couple of times, I wish people in upper management would look at the book and say, wow, we work miracles every single day, which all of you do, right? You do. Couldn't we also do a better job of making patients feel like human beings? Like, let's make let's make that part of our mission, too. So mm-hmm. in that sense, the book has been very powerful for me, and I, I hope it is equally powerful for the people reading it. Well, Teresa, this has been wonderful. Wow. I mean, I love that last comment you made, you know, putting it right in front of us. Can we? Can we strive at making folks feel like human beings? And, you know, healthcare, uh, unfortunately, many times is very transactional in our relationships. And, and, and what I really hear you saying is talking about empathy. You know, our, our CEO talks about empathy, uh, which is a very important principle mm-hmm. within our system on a regular basis. And, and I can just hear empathy coming out of you 
over and over again. So Teresa, on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the books that you're writing. Thank you for uh, out being out there speaking on this subject and just thank you so much. We, we greatly appreciate the work you're doing. Oh, well, you're welcome. And thanks. Thank you for having me and also letting me see a place where people are trying really hard to get it right. That just makes me so happy. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you so much. Take care.